So we've been begun to start. We've been looking at the uh, element of silence in the life of Jesus as we approach the uh, climax of the story of his life and the silence of the cross. And on Good Friday, when we, during the um, liturgy of the Passion, when we uh, choose to come up to uh, reverence the cross, we, um, we do so in, in silence. Oh, just a second. Just take a couple of minutes because it's, uh, it's very helpful if you are on time, actually. So, uh, when we, on Good Friday, when we go up to reverence the cross, we do it in silence. And the cross itself is a silent symbol. And uh, it's, it's not. It's, if we can see the silence of the cross, then we see it as something creative and communicative, not as something frightening or deadening or morbid. Um, so it's important, I think, for us to see how the silence of the cross is the final flowering of the silence uh, that we see in the life, the teaching, and the habits of Jesus. St. Luke especially describes Jesus regularly taking time away, time in solitude, time in silence. And this is the meaning of the desert. And our own times of meditation, of course, are times of silence. Uh, we very quickly realize that it's helpful to choose a quiet time and a quiet place as far as possible, but if you've got young children running around the house or you've got noisy neighbors or you're having to meditate in, a, in an airport, you realize that the external noise, although it's not desirable, isn't necessarily um, a total disaster. In other words, you can still meditate even if there's a certain degree of external distraction or noise. And then you realize that the, the real noise, the real power of distraction, is self-generated. It's in our own minds. And that's why we often run away, because we don't like uh, meeting all of that noise and distraction within ourselves. And yet, the, to persevere in the desert, and Jesus spent 40 days in the desert, and, and all, as we will see in a minute, all night, in prayer, in, in a wilderness, it takes time. You know, people give up meditation sometimes after two attempts because they think, I'm not getting anywhere. Well, it takes time, like everything else in life, uh, that involves real growth and change and breakthrough, integration. It doesn't happen instantly. We can imagine it instantly, we can desire it instantly, but there's a, there's a realistic uh, gap or distance between what we imagine and what is 
you can imagine that you're going to be in New York, but it still takes you five or six hours uh, to get there. So um, what we see, I think, in, in these examples of the silence of Jesus and his solitude in the wilderness is something that touches our own meditation and our own spiritual health in a very uh, helpful and powerful way. So what I wanted to do this evening is look at uh, another example of Jesus uh, praying in silence and solitude. On this occasion, uh, in the last one, it was he was in the desert for 40 days. This was before his work, so as a preparation for his work, um, his public ministry. And in this one, it's in preparation for a, an important decision. And usually uh, we recognize that if we have an important decision, we've got to take, should we sell a house and move to somewhere else, or should we marry this person or that person, or should we go through with this or not go through with that, that these important decisions in life uh, are best taken in as well-prepared a way as possible and that, again, takes time. So again, this is how Jesus, it's how it describes Jesus going into the hills to pray. Um, and this, this is just one sentence. During this time, he went out one day into the hills to pray. And he spent the night in prayer to God. That's this translation. And then when day broke, he called his disciples to him, and from among them he chose twelve and named them apostles. And uh, that was a pretty important decision to take. He was setting up his board of governors or his board of trustees. Or his now, when we see how the disciples behave, we might think he should have spent two nights in prayer because <laughs> <laughs> they weren't... They weren't an exemplary group, but maybe not. Maybe he, he chose the right ones who could learn and learn from their failures. But in the beginning of that sentence, it says, during this time. Well, what was the time? Well, so we look back to the previous paragraph in the Gospel, chapter 6, and it's the time where he had gone into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man in the congregation with a withered arm, was there. And the lawyers and the Pharisees, who were out to get Jesus and tri trip him up or embarrass him or get evidence against him, um, wanted to see whether he would cure this man on the Sabbath, which was not kosher. And he knew what was in their minds, and he said to the man with the disability, get up and stand out here. He healed him, and he looked around at them and said to the man, Stretch out your arm, and his arm was restored. But they were besides themselves with anger. And they began to discuss among themselves what they could do to Jesus. So this is a, one of those critical moments that, leads, that led up to his uh, arrest and his 
execution. Uh, they weren't able to openly condemn him for doing what he was doing because it was embarrassing to be put into that position. They were, they were legalists, but on the other hand, uh, they knew the people were, would have been against them. So politics, again, has nothing new about that in the history of religion. But the important thing, I think, is to recognize this is the time in which Jesus goes away up to the hills and spends all night uh, uh, in, in prayer. This is a time of anger and conflict and division, time of stress, time where he begins to feel that the institutions are beginning to turn against him. It's a time of danger. Uh, so there's a lot of stress, and you know, Jesus felt stress like anybody else. So what does he do? He, 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 he withdraws. Now, did he go into the desert in order to decide who the 12, disciple, uh, 12 apostles should be? Or did, it, did this occur to him? Is this the fruit of that? The, the, the decision to choose 12, was that the fruit of that uh, night of prayer? We don't know. But there's a clear connection between that uh, decision and his time in solitude, a time in which he could very easily have made a bad decision, because we, could all, we all make bad decisions when we're frightened, when we're angry, when we feel isolated, when we're reacting uh, to something. So, so I think we see here another aspect of the place of silence in the, in the life and as an expression of the wisdom of Jesus. Just to look at the, that sentence a little bit more in a bit more detail, the translation that's given to us and everything we know, uh, all the words of Jesus virtually have come to us in translation. Father B. Griffiths used to say this, is, this was a very good thing. Because if we had the exact words of Jesus, we knew exactly what he said, then uh, we would worship the words. But because we have the tr a translation, we have to interpret the meaning. And it's the interpretation of the meaning that awakens our mind. We're not just blindly following the text, you know, like a, uh, literally. Um, we have to take not a literal, but a literary attitude towards the words of Jesus and uh, the meaning of the gospel. We have to put ourselves into it and, to the best of our ability, uh, interpret the meaning. And we know that we cannot do that entirely on our own. We'd come up with some pretty strange interpretations if we were just left to ourselves. So we have tradition. We have an accumulation of interpretation and of meaning, of layers and layers, and every, every generation comes up with a new translation. Every generation uh, expresses a different cultural experience. Uh, after the 20th century, the most violent century in human history, we, we interpret the, the Gospels very differently uh, in an age 
a secularized age um, rather than an age of faith. So we are con in, in a continual, continuous relationship with the words of Jesus precisely because we don't have the exact words. And it's the spirit, this is how we, we interpret it, of course, is that the spirit is the medium by which this teaching is given. It's not just the words themselves, but it's through the spirit that the meaning and the, uh, the, the mind of Jesus is uh, communicated to us. So that's why uh, it's helpful sometimes to, to get into the exact words of the text to make sure that we don't start worshipping the words of the translation either. And very often we then discover there is an ambiguity. We don't know exactly what it means. When it's in translation like this and it's in a book that's called the New Testament, we think this must be what it means. But actually, sometimes there is, an, there is a double meaning or several meanings. For example, the phrase we usually translate from the Greek, uh, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Well, we think we know what that means. It means it's personal, it's interior, it's uh, within us. But that same preposition that we translate as within or in is equally well translated as among or in your midst. Well, that ambiguity tells us something about the meaning, doesn't it? The kingdom of heaven is within you. The kingdom of heaven is among you. What does that say about the experience of the kingdom? John Maine said the kingdom is not a place or a reward, it's an experience. So what kind of experience can we say is both within us and among us at the same time? Well, it's, we might say it's an experience of non-duality, neither this nor that. It's not a question of either or, but a, an experience in which our minds, our consciousness, our perception have in a way transcended this either-or uh, choice. It's both. It, 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 and in, in, in some contexts, it would be best to describe it as within you. But in another context, the same experience could be felt to be shared and uh, with others. Meditation, you might say, is about finding the kingdom of heaven within you because it's quite solitary. I can't meditate for you. And uh, when we meditate, we don't sort of say the mantra for each other. But we nevertheless do find that when you meditate, you begin to experience community. And this community, which is a new kind of being with others, a new way of relationship, new kind of spiritual friendship, that that, uh, community, that uh, uh, community with others can take a very real shape. We could be with actual people in actual conditions of working together and um, being together. So, within or among. So in the same way, this phrase, in prayer 
uh, to God. He spent the night up on the hills, not in the desert this time, but up on the hills, uh, in prayer to God. Well, um, literally, the, the, the Greek means something more like in the prayer of God. But that wouldn't be quite as easy a translation to put into the book, in the prayer of God. What does that mean, the prayer of God? What he means is he was up there praying to God. So we interpret that as meaning he was up there on the mountain, kneeling in prayer the whole time, asking God, which 12 should I choose? <laughs> and going through all the options and writing down their strengths and weaknesses on different in different columns. So that's, that's how we would normally interpret praying to God for advice or wisdom or for this or for that. But in the prayer of God, there's something quite different, a different uh, tone and a different, uh, different meaning. could also, uh, I think, in some interpretations, be translated as with God. Some texts suggest that, in prayer with God. So again, um, the inner and the, the within and the among. So not just praying to God, help me deal with these really difficult Pharisees and Sadducees who are messing up, messing, up, <laughs> messing me up and really annoying me, and what am I going to do about them? And also, I need uh, some illumination about which uh, 12 uh, people I should choose. Uh, so there may have been that. Who I'm sure you know, he, he did have these, must have had these uh, issues in his mind, as we all do at different stages of our, of our life, of every day. We've got problems we've got to solve. And... Um, we have different problems every day or every few months uh, a new crisis happens. But So there is that aspect of it. So it could mean in prayer to God. But it also means in the prayer of God. St. Paul says, we do not know how to pray, but the Spirit prays in us. So from our perspective as his disciples, we say that we enter in meditation, in faith, into the prayer of Jesus. Not just praying to Jesus. That's one aspect. But the deeper aspect, because it's more mysterious, is that we are entering actually into his prayer, which then asks the question, what does prayer mean? Does prayer mean me communicating a problem or an issue to God, communicating my will, my, my anxiety, my request to God? Or does it mean at a deeper level, that is not, we can't say that that is not prayer, it's a form of prayer, but there is a deeper level of prayer that takes us beyond that particular crisis or issue or decision that we've got to take. And we decide to go into the, into the desert, up the mountain, 
into the wilderness to enter into the prayer of God for us through entering into the prayer of Jesus. And in that transition, we are no longer thinking about which 12 should I choose or, uh, you know, what am I going to do with these really annoying people? Uh, those issues are there, but they're no longer holding our attention. We've let go of them. And so Jesus says in his teaching on prayer, when you pray, do not worry. Every day has enough problems of its own, so don't worry about tomorrow. And I think he's not saying the problems of your day or the problems of what you are to wear or what you are to eat are not important, but there is a deeper meaning to prayer than that. It can also be interpreted, and some uh, commentators have said that this, these words in Greek could be translated as in the place of prayer, um, which kind of rather begs the question, because if you go to a place of prayer, you're, you go there presumably to pray. But it has these different, these different uh, aspects of meaning, just as our own ordinary speech does. When we speak to each other, we're trying to communicate some subtle feeling or something deep in us that we want to share. Uh, we usually find ourselves using words, and that's only 10% of our communication is verbal anyway, but we find ourselves using words that need to be explained. Otherwise, we just, we'd come up with one definition or one uh, formula uh, for every, every important thing we had to say, and that it doesn't work like that, as we know. Saying what we mean uh, requires more than just a few words. So uh, he goes up to the mountain to pray, and he prays with God, to God, or in the prayer of God, the whole night, which is a long time. Was he praying in exactly the same way all night? Was he in a trance, in a, in a, in a mystical rapture? Was he, did he say Vespers and Compline, and, uh, and then take periods of meditation? Uh, did he do some contemplative walking? Uh, did he do some, some Tai Chi? Uh, we don't know. The important thing is that he was in prayer the whole time. And our own, our own knowledge of how we pray you know, is important for us to be able to, in, to understand the meaning of Jesus praying all night. We find it difficult enough to meditate twice a day, every day, for half an hour. And uh, when you say that to a, a new group of people who are starting a course on meditation, you know, they sort of blink. Two half hours a day, I just can't do that, you know. Come back in uh, six weeks or three months, and you'll find that some of those people will say, um, I couldn't get through my day without those times of meditation.
I've discovered something. So, again, it takes time. Only through time is time conquered, T.S. Eliot says. So, we have to persevere. That's one aspect of faith. Staying with it, being faithful to something. Perseverance might sound like just gritting your teeth and getting through it. And sometimes it can be like that. But it's more than that. It's about relationship. We, we basically talk about faith in ordinary language as uh, an expression of the kind of relationship we have with people. Do we have a faithful relationship? Are we faithful to them? That could mean marital fidelity, sexual fidelity, uh, being faithful to a promise that you've made, all kinds of, of forms of faith. But nobody, nobody's proud of being unfaithful. Usually when we're unfaithful, we either hide it uh, or we get guilty about it and maybe defend ourselves. Or, But being unfaithful doesn't seem to us to be something particularly praiseworthy. Whereas being faithful opens us up to deeper aspects, deeper reaches of what it is to be human. We discover the mystery of our humanity through our fidelity through our faithfulness over time. And again, it takes time. Um, if you make your marriage vows, you know, I, I promise, what is it, you know, I promise to honor, love, honor, and so on. Um, and then you add for the next week, uh, it rather, rather weakens the marriage ceremony and people say, well, why, why go to all this expense just to, uh, just to make this promise for one week? So in the most important decisions, the most important acts of faith we make in life, which are difficult ones to, to make, we can't predict what's going to happen. But we are, nevertheless, at that moment, opening ourselves and committing ourselves as far as we can, sometimes we make mistakes, to a, an open-ended relationship. Not an open relationship, but an open-ended relationship. So uh, St. Paul says, the gospel is a way of salvation that begins in faith and ends in faith. So the whole journey is the journey of faith. The beginning and even the end. So if faith, if we see faith as our journey of relationship, then it is a journey that has no end. So, uh, so he spends all night in prayer to God. He needed this solitude. It was a partial solitude, a partial withdrawal. And there are different kinds of solitude. And in the monastic tradition, which is more sort of rarer and specialized form of life, but isn't 
but is, is in a way a, a, a microcosm or a little, a little model of, uh, of, of ordinary life. Uh, in, in monastic uh, tradition, there are, you know, the, the question of solitude is quite varied. There were uh, arguments about which was the higher form of life in the monastic vocation. Is it to be on your own in the desert, entirely alone? The word monk means monos, alone, or one who is one. Or is it to live in community? There's the other question, if you are living, and, and the monks themselves ask this question. What, um, if you're living on your own, in your beautiful little hermitage, whose feet can you wash? And the washing of feet, which we will be doing on Thursday, uh, on, on Thursday is a very uh, tangible uh, form of contact and relationship with other people. Can't do it in your head. So, so we see in, in all of the monastic literature this sort of ambivalence about solitude or community. Uh, even Saint Benedict uh, seems a bit confused about it because he says that the purpose of the community life is to strengthen you in this little school for beginners, he says, to the point where you can go out into the desert and, and look after yourself and reach the highest levels of prayer in solitude. But then he says somewhere else, this you know, actually living in community uh, in this form is, is, is the strongest kind of uh, life that you could imagine. So, so we have to, again, just, just as we looked at uh, earlier, looked at the different meanings of silence. Um, so we have to see solitude um, in this different way as well. Um, let's just go back to this question of judgment. So there's a critical moment in the life of Jesus. He goes into the desert and up to the mountains and then he comes back and he makes this judgment, discernment. He chooses 12 of all his disciples. Very difficult choice to make. Probably upset quite a few in the process. Um, and, he, okay, and he included the one who was to betray him. So good judgment is, uh, requires a certain level of detachment. We can't make good judgments when we're angry, or we're unbalanced, or we're holding on to the past, when we feel resentful. This is a common uh, idea of the desert wisdom, uh, that we have to let go of the things that disturb us, because our our goal, our, our way, our happiness, our, our vocation our, uh, demands that we live in the present. So 
one of the old monks called Agathon said, I have never gone to sleep holding anything against anyone. And then he adds, in other words, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Well, most of us would stay up for several nights <laughs> before we could do that. I've never gone to sleep holding anything against anyone. But then he adds, or as far as I am able, allowed anyone to sleep with anything against me. Which shows the altruism of this attitude. He's concerned not just with having a good night's sleep himself, uh, but he couldn't have a good night's sleep if he didn't feel that he had done everything in his power to make the other person calm and help them to let go of their resentment. Well, hard, hard but wise teaching here. Letting go of our hurts, our sadness, and our anger for these teachers of the spiritual life was the same as humility. This is humility, they say. This is what being humble really means. It's doing this work of renunciation, of letting go. And it Im involves renouncing your own right to get your own back. Renouncing your, your rights to, uh, to put the other person in their place or to get them to apologize or pay back what they owe you or whatever. It's a radical poverty. It's a radical letting go of your rights. Offensive to us today, very countercultural, because we, uh, we focus so much upon our rights. Um, and uh, humility, uh, they would say, is when your brother sins against you and you forgive him, before he repents, before he repents. You go back to what we were saying about the forgiveness on the cross, before they repent, before they know what they were doing. And your forgiveness is not just letting them off the hook or saying, okay, I won't fine you, but your forgiveness means you're letting go of your justifiable resentment and anger. This is one of the greatest teacher of this in the modern world is the Dalai Lama, who says, "If I if I was angry with the Tibet with the um, Chinese, who who would I be hurting? M me, myself, or the Chinese?" So in this kind of very rational way that uh, he has and Buddhist teaching has. Um, He's saying the same thing. Unless I can let go of this negativity, this hatred or anger or the desire for revenge, I will never have a moment's peace. And if I'm not at peace, then how can I pray? I will just sit there all night with, the, with my mind obsessed with all of the resentments, justifiable resentments, maybe of the past. But it isn't long if you start getting compulsive about 
uh, things that have been done against you, it isn't long before you start imagining things as well. And your resentments start to get mixed up with fantasies and self-justification. So this is humility. And in its deepest uh, meaning, humility uh, comes from the word humus, the earth. It's to be grounded. To be humble is to be grounded in reality and to know yourself, to have that earthy knowledge of yourself that they said was more important than the ability to work miracles. So again, in many ways, this, this kind of psycho this spiritual psychology, which is what it is in a way, the spiritual psychology is uh, very foreign to us. It's not how we think. It, it, maybe it isn't how we think because we haven't pushed the horizon uh, uh, further, that we're still thinking of our well-being or of our wholeness or of our happiness or of our health in uh, too narrow a way. But as soon as we expand that awareness and we see our potential, then maybe there is a logic, a truth in this spiritual psychology which could save us a lot of time. So it may seem counterintuitive to us and uh, we say, well, I have the right to demand this or that. Well, you do. The point is, you also have the opportunity to let go of that right. It's your choice, if you can make that choice. It's your freedom, if you have the freedom to do it. And it will only occur to you, it will only make sense to you when you have a bigger sense of who you are, uh, what your potential is, and what your spiritual motivation means. So this is why, as I say, we need time. The time in the desert, the time on retreat, the time of meditation twice a day, the time up in the mountain all night. Uh, how much time? Well, that's, that's a matter of, of discernment, of intuition. How much time we give to this work, because there's no doubt it is work. And no one can force it on you. And it's not it's not essentially a religious work. And of course, it is in a way. It pu purifies your whole religious mind. And the symbols of religion become much more alive. But religion is, um, operates uh, you know, through symbols and through ritual and through rules to some extent or conventions. Even then, they should be freely accepted rather than imposed upon us. We're not, not by manipulation or by guilt, or we should grow up and decide whether we want to go to Mass every Sunday or we want to 
uh, do this or do that, and if we don't, then we don't have to. Um, so and if, if you were brought up in a different uh, kind of religious environment, then you have to you know, get over it and uh, be debriefed and uh, re rewrite uh, some of those programs in your mind, and be free from it. But nevertheless, even, even, if you are, even if you are a free religious person and you're no longer held back by pharisaical attitudes or scrupulosity or fears, nevertheless, it's not the end game. The, uh, there is the purpose of any of this religious life or activity and is to throw you open to the spiritual. And the spiritual doesn't have rules. It just is what it is. And it is perfect freedom. Where the spirit is, there is liberty, St. Paul says. This was this is, in, this is an inherent tension in the church right from the very beginning between Peter and Paul, for example. So it's nothing new. We see it in the tension between uh, the contemplative life and the um, institutional life of the church and the monastic life and the other forms of life. The important thing for us is that we see that it's about freedom. And how do we become free enough to make these choices or to recognize these opportunities? Not even so much making choices. It's about recognizing opportunities and going with them. Silence allows the scales to be rebalanced our minds to be rebalanced, so we're not controlled by anger, or sadness, grief, or resentment. And time is necessary in solitude for the heart to be purified, for the eye of the heart to be opened. So it's a work, and the desert uh, teachers were conscious that this work goes on until your last breath. So you don't graduate as a meditator. It, you go on uh, <laughs> forever. And the sign that you're making some progress is that you become less judgmental. That you make good judgments because you are less judgmental. So many of these stories from the desert uh, wisdom express this famous one as Abbot Poman, his, his favorite one here, um, he's talking with a group of the older monks and they're saying, a lot of these younger monks today, you know, they come to our vigils and they fall asleep during prayer. Well, this just isn't acceptable. This is giving us a bad name. Well, they don't say that, but they're, they're, they get, they say, what shall we do about, you know, controlling this? And then, so they're all talking about different ways of doing it, and then Abbot Perman says, well, you know, you must do what you think best, but he said, personally, when a younger monk falls asleep next to me, I just put his head on my lap and let him sleep. 
So the point of that is, of course, to be non-judgmental. Mercy triumphs over judgmentalism. So we overlook the sins of others. Very important element in the spiritual life. Uh, again, very different from our contemporary culture. You know, the tabloid newspapers may get their teeth into somebody who has sinned <laughs> one way or another, uh, demonizes them and tears them to shreds, tries everything to destroy them, and we all enjoy it. Even though it shocks us, we all read, read it. So a very different, a very different perspective on uh, how si silence and solitude help us to find the balance that we need to, to grow as a whole person, which is what the spiritual life means. And finally, one of the things, I, I was saying that the solitude that we see Jesus entering is as the Celtic monks and the desert monks also recognize it's relative. Uh, it may depend upon your personality. I had a friend some years ago who was a, was a hermit and he was a real hermit. He, he, he really needed to be very, um, spend a lot of time alone. But, uh, but he was a healthy person and uh, he was, he occasionally he would get involved. Some, you know, occasionally you could drag him out and he would give wonderful talk at, uh, to other people. And he enjoyed it. He enjoyed being with other people and he didn't go around looking like a hermit. But then when the time, you know, but, but he knew, he knew his strengths, he knew his weaknesses, he knew his own temperament. Uh, he would, we would withdraw and you wouldn't see him for, for a, long, a long while. So that was, that enabled him to be healthy. And he wouldn't have been able to do that if he was living, you know, in a city or, you know, in a large community or whatever. It's just the way he was. He had to accept it. You can't judge him either way. He wasn't better than other people. He wasn't worse than other people. He was who he was. So it's the same for us. We have to find, we certainly all need solitude and silence. We need to take times for it. It may be those two half hours a day, or maybe more. Uh, two half hours a day sounds pretty minimal, minimal but maybe it's going to be less for some people. So in other words, we have to find for ourselves the right kind of solitude and the right balance of solitude that enables the, the mix uh, that we are to, to work. We have to find the optimum distance. So I thought it was an expression of, of Jung, I think it may be. Um, but I, try, I looked it up uh, once to see what optimum distance would give me on Google. But it didn't give me anything from Carl Jung. It was 
endless entries about how to survive long-distance relationships. <laughs> how, to how to keep your relationship going through Skype, you know. So, but uh, optimum distance is something that makes sense. And it's a flexible thing. It's like focusing with your camera. You have to decide what you're going to focus on and what you're going to keep in focus. So uh, we need this, we'll look at this maybe a bit more tomorrow. But I think it's expressed in the, the, the core relationship, the essential relationship at the heart of the, of the story of this week, the story of Jesus. What is his central relationship? What is his central relationship? What is it? With his mother? Hmm? With the father, isn't it, really, isn't it? That's his central core relationship. And what does he say about himself and his father? The Father and I are one. Yes. But any, anyone who sees me sees the Father. What else does he say about the Father? I'm sent by the Father. So the ground is... Hmm? In the name of the Father. Doesn't he say the Father is greater than I? So the Father and I are one, and then everything that goes with that, everything I'm doing and saying proceeds from this ground of being that I am one with. But then he throws in this other apparently contradictory statement, the Father and I are one. Well, that suggests optimum distance that oneness is not a complete obliteration of identity, but as Tayyar de Chardin says, union differentiates. If we get it right, and it's a real relationship, if there's a real union taking place, we are becoming fully ourselves, just as that with which we are in relationship, or the person with whom we're in relationship, is also becoming and is allowed to be fully themselves. This, just before we meditate now, we'll just look at the second of those seven last words of Jesus on the cross. And this is from the um, Gospel of Luke where he is crucified with the two thieves on both on either side, the good thief and the bad thief, so Jesus in the middle between this duality. And uh, the bad thief, you remember, is uh, bad-mouthing him and ridiculing him. And the good thief recognizes the goodness of Jesus. He said, you know, yeah, I'm a bad man, I'm a thief. 
murderer, whatever I was. But this is a good man. He, he shouldn't be up here. And what does that say about him? And then Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. This day you will be with me in paradise. Um, again, something we can translate a little differently, but we won't worry about that at the moment. So with that, uh, let's take our time to meditate. Take a time for moments to loosen up your shoulders, move your neck around. Meditation is a very embodied way of prayer. You don't meditate just in your head. So take a moment to allow the body to become friendly and present. And also, that, so that you can uh, feel that the body is like an anchor, gently holding you in, in the present moment. And the body is always present. So it's the definition of being present, really. Whereas the mind is our usual way of being and the mind is anything but present. We're thinking of lunch or we're thinking of dinner or breakfast. So let's just take a moment to allow the body to anchor the mind and still the mind. And one little mindful way you can do that is just to be aware of your breath. Just observe your breathing. Maybe take a couple of deep breaths just to refresh yourself, first of all. And then just give your attention to the flow of breath in and out of your body. Then gently introduce your mantra. The word I suggest again is Mara Natha, Ma Ra Na Tha, Ma Ra Na Tha. And as you say the word, articulate it clearly in your mind and heart. Say it clearly without moving your lips. But don't visualize it, listen to it as a sound. Ma, ra, na, tha. It's 
Say the word gently without force and say it with full attention. <laughs> 